Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 146 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. In today's episode, we are again joined by guest host Richard Hawkins, who is a master mouthpiece craftsman and professor of clarinet at the Oberlin Conservatory. His guest today is Stephen Williamson, who is principal clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. They discuss why you need to be an interesting musician, the importance of different perspectives, studying the German system clarinet, finding balance in life during this current pandemic situation, and dealing with nerves during performance. Before we do get started today, I want to thank our 75 Patreon backers and our sponsors for helping make the show possible. If you'd like to access an extended ad-free version of this show and many others, you can become a patron at clarinet.com slash subscribe, and I truly appreciate your support. In fact, the supporters this month were able to help me buy a new audio interface for the podcast. You might wonder where the podcast was this month, and I had an unbelievable amount of problems after my first interface, which I bought way back in like 2014 or actually 2012, I think, but it failed. I don't know what was going on, but I kept buying things and they would break and they weren't working right. But I finally settled on a new interface called the Zoom L8. And this has a fantastic feature, which actually allows me to plug in my phone and record calls directly into the unit. Now, the really amazing thing about this, I can actually, with a simple press of a button, I can record a backup onto an SD card at the same time. And the truly amazing thing is that I can actually take this on the road without my computer, plug in some microphones and record any anywhere that I want to. It's an incredible unit. I'm so happy to have upgraded the podcast to this, and it's really helping me to create the best content that I possibly can. So thank you to everyone and our sponsors for for taking the Clarinet podcast, as always, to the next level. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Chiffrin, Corrado Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. Take your playing to the next level with Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. For Canadian customers, be sure to check out the new store that allows you to pay in Canadian dollars. And for everyone listening, I have an exclusive coupon just for you for listening to the podcast. You can use code CLARINET at checkout for 10% off your next purchase, whether it be a mouthpiece, barrel, or even a custom clarinet at bakunmusical.com. Again, that's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. As a side note, Bakun is now also carrying Legere reeds, so you might want to check those out as well with, for example, the Vocalese mouthpiece, which pairs really, really well with the Legere reed products. Clarinet is also supported now by Audible, which is my favorite way to read. I'm currently listening to a book called The Wim Hof Method, which is not only the story of this man's highly amazing life, but how his now famous breathing and cold therapy method will activate your full human potential. I'm on day seven of trying this out, and I look forward to discussing this actually with some other musicians who've also been experimenting with the method on a future episode of the show. You can get your free ebook by starting a free trial of Audible today at clarinet.com slash Audible. That's clarinet.com slash A-U-D-I-B-L-E. Steve, wow, it's so great to see you. Oh, thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. And, and you know, <clears throat> unbeknownst to most people, you and I have actually never met in person before. No, but you and, know what's strange? I think it's, is it, is it true we actually 
we're at all state tech in Texas together and some yes. sort of somebody posted something a while ago that had our names next to each other. I don't even know what we were playing, but but I saw your name. I'm like, I didn't know I knew Richard Hopkins. <laughs> we were sitting right next to each other. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. So um so tell us a little bit about where you grew up actually. Well, uh I was actually born in Denver, Colorado, but I spent I would say most of my life um in in Texas, primarily, before I moved, I moved back and forth. So my first, uh, like kindergarten through third grade, um, or second grade rather, was in in a little town in in near Corpus Christi in Texas called Beeville, very tiny little town. My dad is band director there uh, for the high school, and then we moved up to Wyoming, where my dad went to school, and um, he. You know, so Wyoming, we, we sort of went around to a few di different places there for about two or three years. Then I moved back. Uh, my dad got a job in Austin, and that's where I stayed for most of my, um, all, all the way through high school. So junior high and high school were in Austin, Texas. My dad was a high school band director. So um, for four years, I was, you know, his, yeah. his clarinetist. <laughs> that's awesome. So, I mean, I grew up in Houston originally, and... And in fact, I have a family in Austin still and, and go down there quite a bit. And, and uh, it's, it was an interesting place to grow up and being a clarinet player because we, we you know, learned so many, so many of the sort of fundamental methods of playing the clarinet in the, in the band world, especially down for there, sure. right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I hardly played an orchestra. In, I mean, if it wasn't for all-state orchestra and maybe an occasional region or a, yeah. an all-city orchestra, I... I we, we didn't have, I mean, we had a string orchestra in our high school, but it was really just a string orchestra. They didn't have any um, winds or brass or percussion. So that was it for me. Band was, was it. And I learned only, um, mostly band transcriptions of orchestral works. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I learned them all in the wrong key on the wrong. Oh my God. By the time I got to my freshman year at Eastman, I, we had auditions, um, you know, for, for ensemble placement. And I was so frustrated because, I mean, I just, Capriccio Espanol was on the wrong instrument. Parazon <laughs> was on the, I, I just was so unprepared. Um, or I thought I was, but at least, you know, technically we, we played more notes because we're playing violin parts all the time. Right, right. All the two so, spots, right? Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. in a way I, I gained some technical um, mm -hmm. skills, but I, I, I really, I was green. I was as green as they come when it came when it came to orchestral music. So, I I I mean, I still tell some of my students, you know, every once in a while when I think about it, like, you know, I didn't even know what Mahler was until I went to college. Like, I just didn't know any of that repertoire. You know, it's kind of amazing. You know, all the stuff that we didn't know. And now, of course, the society is saturated with with so so many places to go to to listen to music, and and it's it's really fascinating to see that students are are. Uh, almost sometimes struggling to find places to hear things, you know, even though it's all out there, you know, it's amazing. So, it's true. yeah. So when you left to go to Eastman then um, for your undergraduate, um, you spent four, four years at, in Rochester. Yep. Four years. And, and tell us a little bit more about that experience and, and, and afterwards. Well, the first two years, um, my freshman and sophomore year, I studied with Michael Webster, uh, who uh, 
is down in Houston. Mm -hmm. uh, I know he, he teaches uh, at Rice as well, uh, Rice University, but um, I, I was really lucky because after Michael Webster, so the combination of Michael Webster and Ken Grant were my teachers. Mm -hmm. So in your senior year was Ken Grant. And um, they're both uh, students from Stanley Hastie's uh, studio. The first two years was essential, uh, my, my studies with, with Mr. Webster, because uh, not only did he teach me really some strong fundamentals, um, he really started to open my eyes and ears to the orchestral repertoire, which mm -hmm. we really needed to focus on, because I, like I said, I was super, super green. Um, but he also was an extraordinary, and is an extraordinary um, reed maker. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to make reeds from scratch. It was really, really, uh, it, was a, it was an uphill battle for a while, personally, just because, I mean, the amount of patience that it took was, uh, at, at first I thought, I I'm getting nowhere. But yeah. then all of a sudden, it, it just clicked. And then I was able to really enjoy the process. And the, the end result for me was fantastic. So I, I'm really grateful because even though I learned so many other fundamentals from him, I would say the greatest thing that I learned from him was, was reed making. And being able to use now, I mean, I basically use commercial reads, but I, I'm able to, um, to work on them in a really, uh, it's, it's not as tedious as, as I think it is for most people for me, because I had such good instruction. Mm -hmm. So I, I do that. Um, but then after that, I went, uh, Mr. Webster left uh, to go, he was living in Boston, and the commute was too much. And he was coming every two weeks. And we were just sort of cramming every two weeks for lessons. And I, I think it was a tough uh, schedule for him. So he, he, he decided to stay in Boston and then I had to transfer into another studio. And um, there were two teachers there at the time. There was Ken Grant and Charles Knighty. And I took lessons from both of them. And to be perfectly honest, I, I ended up studying with Charlie at Juilliard. But at that time, I was so not ready to be a student uh -huh. of Charlie because for me, like his brain was moving so fast and he was constantly, I honestly, everything was way over my head. Yeah, I get it. it. I totally and, and, get it. <laughs> and I was so, I was very, he was so, so nice to me. And, you know, I think he, he was willing to take me into a studio, but I, I, I personally felt like, I don't know if I can keep up. And for me going into Kenny Grant's studio was, was a, was a perfect fit for me at that time because it just enhanced what I already was learning. And we were, we were going further and further into um, uh, more orchestral work. I think I got a really great um, orchestral uh, foundation because of those four years. And then I really wanted to pursue a solo, solo career. Um, and I, I got a Fulbright, uh, I applied for a Fulbright and I got a Fulbright to, to go to Berlin for, for one year, but then I extended it for an, a, a second year. Um, so I was there pretty much focusing, I wanted to learn the German system, first of all, that was my statement of proposed study, but then um, to, to basically immerse myself in solo and chamber works was also another big thing for me. And so I did a lot of competitions, both chamber music competitions and solo competitions. And um, that was a great experience for me. And, and to be, you know, to basically uh, immerse yourself in another culture, where I didn't speak English, 
for almost two years. I mean, Amazing. I would occasionally with, with a, another Fulbrighter from America that was happened to live in the dormitory with me, but most of the time it was as it should be, you know, it was really yeah. a great experience. And, and to go hear the Berlin Philharmonic as much as I was able to do was just a, was a real, real treat. So that was, um, that was my second, the, the following two years. And I was take I, I did the, the ARD competition in the end of my um, second year. And uh, that's when Charlie Nidick was on the jury. And I got into the semifinal round um, that year for that audition, that competition. And he, he came up to me um, afterwards and he was so nice. And he's, he said, you know, I really think you sound great. I was pushing for you the whole way as were several other jury members. But the thing, you know, it, you never, competitions are crazy. It's just like, course, yeah. you just don't know. And music is so subjective. You know, it was, uh, I was just happy I got as far as I did. But that's when he said, hey, if you wanna, you wanna come to, when you come back to the stage, you should audition. And, and I, I would love to be able to teach you. Um, so that's when I auditioned for Juilliard. And, um, and then I studied with Charlie for two years for my master's. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Amazing guy. I mean, just, you know, your comment about sort of being way above, right? I mean, he could spend so much time on something that is just so, so important. And, and um, you get just an amazing amount of, of uh, knowledge from, from him. It's, just, it's really, really incredible. I, I've always enjoyed listening to him. He's been noble a few times and, and done some classes here and, and, and came with the quintet uh, years oh, back. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, just amazing. You know, I, I learned so much from him, especially about um, sort of breaking out of my, he used to, he, he constantly, um, uh, he said, look, you're, you're a very fine player, but you're, you're very Aristotelian. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> of course, he's helping me delve deeper into myself, learning more about what, what that adjective actually really meant. And yeah. he said, you have two colors. You're either loud or soft. There's uh -huh. nothing in between. And I was <laughs> like, oh my God, I feel horrible. That's all I have. And um, so he really challenged me to broaden um, the, the amount of color and take more chances as a musician, step away from sort of the putting it in a box like, right. you know, I mean, we, we try to teach our students, look, you can't really go, you can't reach for the stars until you get the bare bones of what the piece is mm -hmm. really about. And, and I, I really am grateful that he, he knew that I had the bare bones. He wanted me to be much more interesting as a musician. And so mm -hmm. he challenged me. Uh, I'll never forget one time I was playing the Copeland Concerto. I was really excited about it. I was like, finally get to play the Copeland Concerto for Charlie Nidick. This is such a huge thrill. And I went, it was up on the fifth floor, I think, of the of, of Juilliard. We were in this room and I'm starting to play it. And I'm I'm about, I don't know, I'm, I'm through, I'm through the bulk of the the first uh, uh, the first part of the concerto, you know, and I'm about to get into the cadenza. And then I notice he 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 opens one of the closet doors. There were about like seven closets. It's just standing giant wardrobes and he opens one of the closet doors and I, and he, he goes inside the closet and he shuts the door. 
Now, I'd seen him before do something similar where he just said, you know, if I leave the room, keep playing. And I'm like, so I just kept playing. So I, I get through the cadenza. I'm like, he's not coming out. <laughs> <laughs> so then I keep going and I get to, I'm, I'm on the last page of the whole, I mean, it, we're talking about 12, 13 yeah. minutes go by. And the weirdest thing is occasionally I hear a little boom, boom, boom in the closet. And I was like, what's going on? Just, just keep playing, finish the piece. So I get to the, the gliss at the end and I finish the piece. And all of a sudden I, I hear a, and, and the door bursts open and he jumps onto the sofa in front of me. And he acts very calm and he says, it measures so-and-so and so-and-so, you should have done this and this and you forgot to do this and you forgot. And my, I mean, my eyes were just out of my head. And I was kind of like, I, I said, were you, were you locked in that closet? Did you get locked in the closet? He said, absolutely not. I was listening and I wanted to hear everything from a different perspective. Um, okay. So to this day, I still don't know. I think he was locked in there, but the funny thing was he's still listening to me. And he was as crit critical as ever. And um, I'm always amazing. grateful for everything that he had to say because it was really, uh, it was always spot on. So it's fantastic. Amazing. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Crazy fun. <laughs> so, I mean, we probably, this, this question is probably something that, that we would both answer the same way just because, you know, growing up and being in that sort of the, the band system and, and going through, you know, the, the regionals and all state and all that kind of stuff, you know. and but I guess I would ask you, um, you know, as a youth, what were some of the method books that you that you used for yourself? And, you know, do you still use the same method now or do you do you have some differences of of, of um, you know, repertoire and things that you work with your students with? You know, it's interesting. That's a good question, because I. I mean, I, I basically did what everybody was doing in Texas at the time. So there would be your three etudes, mm -hmm. and that could be uh, usually the Rose etudes. Or by, by my junior, senior year, they were doing a, a bunch of David Haidt um, mm -hmm. etudes as well. And, but my teacher, um, who I'm so grateful for, she was fantastic. And uh, she still plays. She plays in the Austin community uh, band. Um, cool. uh, Wind on so I can't remember in in Austin and she's a a fantastic clarinetist and she was really successful with Mary Kay Cosmetics so her career oh, was shooting wow. off with Mary Kay and she started to just chop down her studio and mm -hmm. she didn't have time and I was so grateful that she kept me I was basic I think I was her only student by the time um, I was in my junior and senior year wow she was so kind to still keep teaching me and I was really grateful. We mainly worked out of rose etudes, an occasional Jean Jean, but mostly the Close Prescott. Mm -hmm. We just, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I did that book from you know, fr front to back. Mm -hmm. And then she'd always pull me back when certain things weren't lining up and she'd give me more uh, scale studies and uh, thirds. Page, and fourth page and 123, page yeah. 123. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would be my opening. Um, I would have to come in and play that at the uh -huh. beginning of every lesson. I did the she same thing. I always would make sure that I, I, was, I wasn't getting lazy. Right, right. 
Long tones on page 123, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, but the truth is, at this time in my life, I, I don't do any of those. And I, mm -hmm. I, I'm probably paying a, a very, very drastic price for it. But I do, uh, and most, so to answer your question, what I do with my students, um, most of the time, um, most of my students are graduate students. And occasionally, I'll pick up an undergraduate student here or there who, for me, uh, I, I feel like, is very advanced and I can, uh -huh. uh, I can I work mostly on um, musical interpretation and mm -hmm. if there's a technical issue that comes up and they, they do um, mm -hmm. then I will assess a particular exercise or an mm -hmm. etude that will help them get through whatever the difficult technical work that they might be experiencing but most of the time I find a musical way to to help them overcome whatever is happening technically. Mm -hmm. And that usually fixes the problem. Yeah. And they just, they go on their merry way and that problem doesn't come up again. Mm -hmm. uh, as far so, as, I don't know, as far as A2 books, uh, I, I still occasionally go to, um, I do a lot of, I, just lately I've, I've opened up the grand etudes by Delacluse for mm -hmm. my students because it, 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 it they, uh, they replicate the ideas from certain uh, standard works in their orchestral repertoire. I, I, look, most of the students that come to me want to win a job, mm -hmm. an orchestral job. So I spend a lot of my time working orchestral excerpts. Um, and then, of course, the standard concerti right. and um, solo works that I think you, you just need to have always under your belt uh, mm -hmm. just in case. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes in final rounds with the orchestral auditions, they'll ask for, you know, they're always going to ask either the Mozart Chronic Concerto or Premier Rhapsody. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen where they're like, please bring a, a solo piece of your choice. And so I want to make sure that it's something that's not only user friendly or listener friendly, but also can show off their talents. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got a special gift, yeah. maybe more than one. But I know that uh, if they're, if you find works that, that really embody that person's, um, nature I think that they end up playing their best uh, because it fits them you know certain works for me certain works in the French repertoire do not fit me and I it was funny because a lot of times when I was studying the German system that's extremely difficult a lot of the French repertoire is extremely difficult on the German system and I would find it very it was interesting that even while I was there um, they would shy away from some of the French repertoire it just just felt horrible to play, and it was just a, it was a tendonitis central uh, type <laughs> of piece for them. So I, I started learning most of the French repertoire by the time I was studying with Charlie. So uh -huh. um, I just, most of the stuff in the beginning was really German German works mostly. Well, so speaking of the, the German clarinet, you know, um, I think it was in the early '90s when I was on a a tour with. Uh, with Eddie Daniels and Sabina Meyer, where we're doing this quintet, this quintet music in, in wow. Hanover, and and uh, we had to play. I think it was four forty, four forty five, maybe something like that, right? And so, yeah. um, it was it was it was interesting to do that. But I got turned on by the German clarinet too. So I I I also have a set that I use occasionally, and and um, it was really amazingly good for the technique. Just like at first it's very frustrating and you know, you try to figure it out, but there's some things that are easier and some things are things that are way harder. So 
in, in talking about that particular instrument and your experience with it, I mean, you must know that in the 90s, Chicago Symphony, in fact, used German clarinets. And they, I always yeah. thought it was fascinating when, when, when Larry, um, you know, sort of started doing, talking about it. And all of a sudden, they all had Wurlitzer clarinets, right? And, and, and I, and and they're probably still there somewhere, right? I mean, there are unfortunately one 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 instrument is is gone, and that's the the Wurlitzer bass clarinet. Nobody knows oh, wow. what happened to it, so it's a real shame because apparently it was a really really nice instrument, ah, and I, I think it fell through the cracks. Unfortunately, somebody's got it somewhere. Uh -huh. So, do you still play any German system? Um, I very I occasionally. Uh huh. Uh -huh. I'll I'll pull it out if I need to be reminded of the, like, if it's Schubert or Brahms, where I need to be reminded of the, the evenness between yeah. registers, and even though it's ergonomically more difficult, um, I, I I always felt that uh, the inherent intonation and um, evenness of sound between all the registers was really one of the things that attracted me the most to the instrument. So I, I pull it out occasionally for stuff like that. But mm -hmm. um, in my studies, I mean, I spent about six months just, I put the French system away and I just was on the German system for about six months. And by the end, I was starting to really like delve into, you know, difficult works like Daphnis and, oh my God, what else was I? Spore 2. I was trying to really like, I, I got yeah. this. I, I feel like uh, I got this, right? That's and good. I go in and I play for my teacher. Um, his name was Peter Rikoff. Um, he's a wonderful, uh, he, he passed away, unfortunately, a while ago, but he was a wonderful, wonderful teacher that um, taught at the Hochschule der Künste. And I came in and I started to play and he sat back and, and I really felt like I, I mean, it was the best I could do considering I'm not yeah. a, a, you know, a native of the German clarinet. Right. He stopped for a second and he said, you got all the notes. He said, that's just great. He goes, but you know what? It's not your voice. And I went, oh, <laughs> don't feel bad. He said, I really think you can take the sound that you're looking for in the German system and put it into the French system, uh -huh. put it into your instrument. And he was so spot on because once I started subbing in some orchestras in town, my instrument had a wraparound key that goes around the front. Uh -huh. So it wasn't German system, mm -hmm. but it looked like German system and far enough away and the, the section knew, like the section would know, but they, they kept it cool because they're like, this guy sounds good. And, and I didn't even change my barrels. That's how weird it was. Like I just, for some reason, was playing at 446, you know, after a period of time, like, because that's all you heard. That's, I was just yeah. hearing this incredibly high uh, pitch and it, I just sort of adapted to it. The problem mm -hmm. was when I came back to the States mm -hmm. and I was taking some like a concert artist guild competition like that. I had to, I came back like two to three weeks in advance to try to pull myself back to 440 because I had uh -huh. to play the piano. And that was, that was so difficult. I bet. Um, but I bet. you know, I didn't have any money. I didn't have like extra barrels. I didn't have, so yeah. I had to try to just do it with what I had. Amazing. And wow. uh, yeah, that was a tough one. But it, but it, you know, after a while, it's, I find that it's, if it's in your ear, yeah. it can come through the instrument, but it has to be in your ear. And that, that's an adjustment period that you've got to just deal with. Now, of sure. course, I, I, I use equipment. 
because yeah. if I have to jump from, sometimes I'll play over in Japan, I'll play with an orchestra that's 442, 443. Okay, I have, I have all the equipment now. I don't have, right. to, I don't have to wait too long to adjust. My mm -hmm. ears are adjusting, but the, you know, to get the equipment just right, it's much mm -hmm. better to have a setup that works for. Yeah, I was always amazed by by Sabina actually because she, I think it was the Stamets recordings. Um, she told me amazing, um, amazing right? So oh, beautiful. Um, so some of my most favorite recordings of the clarinet period. I mean, just amazing. And and I remember asking her because it was around that time um, that I met her. You know, it was right after that recording, and and that was the very first time I I've not you know mistaken that she told me that it was the first time she'd ever have to play 440 and it was with um St. Martin in the fields yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and and uh and all she did was change the mouthpiece because she was she was using i think it was either her father's or her grandfather's mouthpiece that she she was playing and it was a it was a Wurlitzer mouthpiece um yeah. a wooden uh, it was a wooden Wurlitzer and uh, that's all she did for the German clarinet was just change the mouthpiece to go from such a high pitch to a low pitch for her. I know? think it's amazing, and I yeah. love those recordings. I mean, she is yeah. Uh, yeah. she's amazing. one of them. Absolutely, I love her playing. So, what's on your stand these days? Oh man, <laughs> just because it's on the stand doesn't mean I'm doing <laughs> well, anything. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no, I'm trying. Uh, I am trying to keep up uh, regiment. Um, it was so much easier in the very beginning of this uh, pandemic because I was like, wow, okay, I got all this time. So yeah, right. I'm really going to delve into some things that I know I never gave enough attention to. Mm -hmm. um, so like a lot of, uh, it, I, like I said, it wasn't scales and it wasn't arpeggios and it wasn't any of that stuff, but I was delving into technical um, works that, that I always wanted to spend a little bit more you know, woodshedding. Quality time, right. Exactly. And yeah. so I immediately went to the Corigliano Concerto and then I went to the Nielsen Concerto. Those uh -huh. two were on my stand all the time. Uh -huh. And then I went to the Brahms Quintet because uh -huh. there are still moments in there where there's a slight bit of a, you know, in, in the gypsy flourishes that happen mm -hmm. i start to have a moment of panic like okay am i really going to pop that f sharp out or am i going to get that high a because right, right. so I, I i slowed things down and then of course what i usually tell my students to do you know you take certain groupings of notes you hold the first one you play the rest of them as fast as possible and then you do the second note and do the rest of them as fast as possible. so i kept trying to, to get my technique to sound more effortless uh -huh. so i could really enjoy the music making rather than get caught up in the technique mm -hmm. and and that kind of pri private uh you know as i call it a uh, very revealing uh <laughs> mirror is right in front of you you, of course. you know what your flaws are and you, yeah. you have to face them so yeah. doing that has been really really helpful now like i said in the beginning i had a lot of I had a lot of time and yeah. i had a lot of focus i was really really i was hitting it hard mm -hmm. And about the fourth week of the pandemic, I just, I almost burned out. And I, I just sort of sat back from the clarinet a little bit. And I said, you know, I'm not getting a balance in my life. Like I had, I needed to, I needed to get outside a lot more. I needed to um, do other things. What I also do now is I, I go back to, to recordings that I 
used to listen to or things that I've always wanted to hear. Now, like you say, with technology today, you can go on YouTube, you can hear anything you want. It's yeah. almost everything is accessible. So I was, or, or I go to the Met Opera um, website because there were so many operas that I performed that I never even got to see. I just didn't, I didn't have time to see an mm -hmm. HD broadcast or something I did. Oh, that's cool. That's a great idea. That's cool. So it was really helpful for me to see productions um, and, and in here how I would play things differently now. Mm -hmm. Sort of a, I think coming from the world of opera into the symphonic world has been a change. And I feel like there are things now that I would, I would do differently for sure. But I always say that it's like whatever I did yesterday isn't good enough for me today anyway. So I've got to keep pushing the envelope and find a better way or higher. I keep trying to raise the bar. That's sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, do you, do you get nervous? Oh, every day. <laughs> Every day. So how do you deal with that? What's, what's your process? Well, you know, oddly, um, I think I get more nervous now that I'm older. Uh -huh. I think I was less nervous. And the fact that we came through the, the, the Texas um, high school, junior high and high school programs where you would audition in front of everybody else. Yeah. Right. Like there was a screen, but that was just for the juror, the, the three jurors. Uh, right. Everybody else was sitting right next to you in the same room with you yeah. moving yeah. their fingers while you're playing yeah. like they're, they're yeah. playing the same etude while you're, you're hearing all this extra noise yeah and sometimes people are dropping pencils sure i'm not saying they're doing it intentionally but there are times when i could feel some competitors <laughs> going a little bit overboard yeah. and you know just staring you down and oh my god mm -hmm. it was like it was like um i don't know i i i i associate it with like say the gladiators in the Colosseum, it's like you know, it's like this or this, and right. you're like, good God! Uh, yeah. so I, I developed a tough skin. I think you had to. You had mm -hmm. to really, really be. Now look, we're we're talking about three etudes, and right. I don't know how many endless hours that I know you were the same that you spent working on that stuff to where it was always basically not only for memory, but you could write it out if you had to. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I can still pick them up and play them exactly the same way as I used to. Like, Absolutely. and I haven't seen them in 25, 35 years, you know? I know. It's exactly the same way. I, kind of amazing. It is amazing. I mean, I think that that type of discipline was, was I mean, I wish, I wish I had that kind of discipline now. Like, if I could just tackle certain, so in, in a way, the pandemic has been, if there is a silver lining, I know that I have the ability and the time to really hone in on some of these things that I've always wanted to do, like I did when I was in, you know, in Texas back in the day. But I do know that that, I had so much more, uh, res I don't know, I, I had so much more confidence in myself and I was not afraid to, to tackle the challenge. And I think I carried that with me for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But by the time, you know, I was starting to audition for, professional orchestral jobs, it, it felt so much, it felt so different. I didn't like the screen and the emptiness of no mm. one around you. So it was a completely different ball game. I've learned to figure it out and it took a while, but once I figured it out, I was like, oh, you know, they're all in the room with you. Just imagine mm -hmm. they're all staring at you. If that helps you, overcoming fear for me was, um, first of all, remembering that there's two kinds of fear, in my opinion. One is you're unprepared. So yeah, you should be afraid. Mm -hmm. Or if you are prepared and you're afraid, it just means that you care so much 
mm. that that you're letting you're letting fear as a negative um, energy take you over. And so I would tell myself, look, that's not negative energy now. That's positive energy because if you transfer it into something that's positive, you're going to all of a sudden realize that that's your confidence. So understanding that if you're afraid it's, and you are prepared, so just try to be prepared. You can't be prepared for everything, but you try your best. And if you know that you're nervous, you say, hey, I'm glad I'm nervous. Yeah, I remember telling myself every time once things started to go my way, I was like, embrace it, use it. Come on, I'm going to turn that into something positive. And the next thing you know, you're playing the way that you know is of the best representation of yourself. And once you do that, there's nothing you can't do. Fantastic. Thank you. Great, great answer. I mean, I think that that's, that's really interesting. I never thought about that, you know, uh, as, as, being a kid and growing up in that sort of situation when you're just playing for everyone all the time and and of course interlocking was like that for a long time where you know it, it, all the students would have to play weekly challenges they called them so the you'd be challenging for your chair you know right and, and well, we had that and, yeah i had that in my band all the time yeah. uh, from but and a part of that, of course, would be, you know, just the fact that when you're young, you just, you're not aware, like, you're not aware of, of even how nerve wracking it can be, right? And as we get older, we start to feel these strange sort of feelings about nerves and things that show up. And, and it's not out of a lack of preparation, usually, it's just mental, you know, just this. I also, I do agree. I think a lot of it, too, is that as we get older, um, our standards get higher mm, mm, for sure yeah and then especially we, since we are all these these amazing young talents that are oh forget you know. it it's great <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, I, i'm always stunned when i say to a particular student i said oh no no you need to you need to do this completely differently you need to try this fingering and this fingering and this fingering and they go they stop for a second they're like okay and then they go um Okay, well, I guess my yeah. job is done here. Speaking of talents, that's actually a talent that is really highly valuable in our world, is remembering fingerings. Like, just, it's like we grew up knowing phone numbers, right? Um, and students now, I find it's difficult sometimes to remember fingerings, and that's just something that you just got to do because, gosh, there's so many out there you can use that can fix problems so easily. Oh, it's great. You it's know. great. I used to, you know, it's funny. I don't know if it was if you had this when you were studying when you were younger but when i got to yeah when i got to eastman and i started studying with mike webster he did have a whole he knew so many different fingerings for everything and the crazy thing was then so i started learning all these alternative fingerings and it was really super helpful especially on e-flat clarinet because for me the instrument itself is all made up of yeah fake fingerings just yeah, the whole world sure. of e-flat clarinet is fake yeah, <laughs> but it, it sounds great if you do it right. Yeah. So that really helped me. When I got to study with Charlie, he looked at me and he said, I, "What was it?" All right, it was Firebird. So yeah. one of my first lessons was playing the variation in Firebird for him. He said, "Why are you playing all those fake fingerings?" He said, "It sounds horrible." And I was like, "Oh." So he said, "Use only real fingerings because for those of us who hear intonation, we know the difference." And I was like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then I started using real fingerings. Now, 
you can go either way on everything. I agree. Sure. And you go too far with anything. But it really helped me because you know what I was doing with fake fingerings, you know, they, they speak a lot easier and they mm -hmm. come out fast. And so I was, I was losing my sense of inner rhythm because I would ah, just, interesting. I could nail this up. And uh -huh. then it would be like, yeah, but that's not what the piece is about. It was almost too easy. Yeah. That's the problem. Sometimes yeah. you can go too far with something that's easy. Right. So using the real fingerings would hold my fingers so that mm -hmm. I could actually especially in the in the firebird variation because once the triplets come out that's actually the slowest um denomination of, of rhythm that you play in the entire excerpt you need to hold them and you need to take time with them mm -hmm. and then you could be lyrical with them rather than you know you're shooting them all out right, so it, right. stuff like that was very helpful but um learning as keeping fingerings and now in the orchestra so many times I don't know what it is. Like one day, this fingering feels great. Then the next day, that fingering isn't really happening. So I've got to have a whole arsenal of different fingerings to get yeah. through the moment. And I remember uh, this happens all the time now. Like I will be performing something and I'll use a completely different fingering because my body says, I need You're to adjusting. use this today uh -huh. yeah. because of the resistance or mm -hmm. what is mm -hmm. happening musically. Yeah. And if you can always get one step ahead of the game, meaning mm -hmm. you can anticipate what is the best thing for you at that moment, it, our brain is, is a computer. So if you're able to just jump ahead of the game a little bit and be in the moment, you can make, that's why I feel like we can always do something better if we keep pushing ourselves Amazing. to try something new. Yeah, great comments, great comments. So I think we're gonna be going to questions soon, but I have one last question for you. Um, and I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate you doing this today. It's, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, if, if there's a trade secret that you didn't know when you were growing up, that you know now, that you are a technique of some sort that you, you have incorporated into your own playing, um, what would that be for you? Okay. I think, well, I, I, I know my flaws. And we all know our flaws. So for me, um, my fingers are my downfall. So I have to spend a lot of time really, um, it didn't used to be, but maybe because I'm more critical of myself, I realized that for me, lyrical lines and being able to play legato and all the registers, that, that's always been, so voicing has always been really a strong suit for me. And also, uh, the cooperative resistance of the reed and the mouthpiece and my air support uh, that that has always grown so i feel like things got much easier for me when i realized that i um uh, did the strength training that i needed to do with my diaphragm pressure learning how to get the right combination of reed resistance and air support my technique started to to skyrocket um, more than, you know, instead of just plateauing, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, this whole idea of maintenance is, it is important as we get older, mm -hmm. but I, I want to go further. I want to feel like it's not about maintenance. It's like, how can I do better? So mm -hmm. I feel like as long as I'm staying true and we're our, all our worst critics, there's for sure, there's no doubt about it. We wouldn't do what we do. It's so OCD that if you're not your worst critic, then I don't know how you can keep pushing yourself. But I do know that if I constantly 
hold myself to a particular standard, which is that I never want my sound to diminish in any way. Mm -hmm. I always want my sound to be the first thing that grabs somebody's attention is, is the beauty of sound. No matter how technical something is, if I just want it to always be beautiful. I know there are exceptions. You can play Zanakis or you could play some things in Stravinsky that are, are meant to be painful, and that's mm -hmm. fine. But in general, I always feel as long as I have a beautiful sound and I have good air support, th then I think that for me, most of the technical things will fall into place. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I do, if, if I was to go back and change something with the knowledge I have now, it would be. Um, to make sure that I would always not try to practice things too quickly, too soon. Uh -huh. I, I tend to, I used to, and I still have this form of impatience where I, I know how I played it yesterday. Why am I not playing it as well today? And I was right. like, look, you've got to slow down, buddy. Cause yeah. you're just, you're putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. Some days, uh, you know, we got to drop a couple rungs in the ladder to get up that's three, right? Yeah. right? So that's amazing. That's what I would Great. try to say. Great answer. Wonderful. Wonderful. So I think we're maybe uh, almost back to Sean if you're there and going to have some questions for us. Here we are. That's an absolutely great conversation you guys had. I love, uh, I think the funniest moment for me was that, uh, what'd you say, the E flat clarinet, everything is fake or something? Yeah, like that. that's great. <laughs> Someone's got to put that on an inspirational poster or something. I love it. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> for the diehard E flat turn on this out there. I don't know. For yeah. me, it was that way. Excellent. So we do have some questions <laughs> rolling in here, um, but I wanted to start off with one that I actually asked Boris Alakverjan last week. He lives in Los Angeles, so this will be kind of the opposite question for you. Um, Los Angeles is an incredibly hot city. Of course, also very humid, but Chicago is is having pretty harsh winters sometimes. So, is there any special considerations as a clarinetist that you've taken? or care of your instruments or reeds or any tips for people who also live in that kind of climate? Yeah, I mean, I'm super meticulous about when I finish playing the clarinet, uh, how I'm constantly blowing water out of every possible tone hole hmm. and pad, and to the extent where it's like, I know I'm always the last person off the stage, always, always. I, I may be pretty close to the first one on stage and I'm always the last one off, and it's mainly because I'm so meticulous about maintaining, uh, you know, the only humidity I want in the instrument is if I use uh, humidifiers in the case. Um, and, and now I've, I've, um, I've got a Lomax case that I use, which is really fantastic. And I, I, I mean, um, it's still, I, it's funny, it's such a habit for me. I still do the same amount of work that I would do anyway but I'm comfortable knowing that the humidity is, is being much more regulated um, by the humidity um, packets that are in the case and how airtight the, the, the seal is on, the, on the, the case itself. So, but as far as uh, with reeds, um, I, I, do a, I have a series of uh, meticulous ways of how I polish my reeds from the very, very beginning before I even play them. I'm, I'm, I'm sealing my reeds more than saying sanding, I'm polishing them from the very, very beginning. So for me, by the seventh or eighth polishing session, my reads really don't change that much. And I've been really, really fortunate that no matter what climate happens, or even if I travel to different altitudes, say if I go up to Vail, 
I, I was being told by so many people, oh, you know, you need to play a three and a half. You got to drop the, forget those fives. They're not going to work. And I would use my fives. And the thing is, is because they just wouldn't change. They wouldn't change. And that, I think that's just a, a, a real meticulous way of trying to maintain some sort of stability. It's hard enough to just play the clarinet anyway. But if you could find, and I know that's why a lot of people go to, to the plastic reeds because they're, they're reliable and uh, they don't work for me, but, but for me, um, polishing the reeds, I'm still able to keep some sense of, um, I'm very confident that they're gonna work. They're gonna work. Now, the truth is sometimes I might have to manipulate them in a different way off of the mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I play a reed upside down as long as it works. Um, <laughs> I'm not. Well, a, you might as well play in a five. That's that's a really strong read. Oh, I've always. I mean, I was either always. I mean, oddly enough, I always played on fives for the most part because. But it was wow. a different mouthpiece. I started on a Van Van Doren five RB lyre, and I, that's what I used through high school through, until the junior year of college, and then uh, Kenny Grant um, encouraged me to switch to a pine, and it was like the hardest switch ever because I was like. I have no sound. I'm blowing my brains out. I'm not getting anything out of the instrument. And he was insisting. He said, no, you know what? You do sound better. It just is a lot more work, but that will change. It's straight. <laughs> and so from that moment on, I've never switched. I just, that's, it's funny. I, I, I maybe started on a four to, to accommodate for the resistance, but by the, literally by the time I, a year later, I was always using fives, and I, that's what I used at the Met or in CSO or even at the Philharmonic. I just, that's always been my thing. Wow, the steel embouchure. <laughs> I do, I use a lot of, yeah. I definitely use a lot of muscular pressure for that. I love that. So we've got some listener questions that have rolled in. Um, Alberto Carrion is asking if you have any helpful tips for improving his tonguing speed. He says that tonguing speed is his kryptonite. He just... <laughs> But tying speed, I'm sure Richard has lots of answers too, so I, I don't want to monopolize this. Uh, uh, for me, tonguing speed has to do with tongue tension, and it has to do with um, the, the type of air column that you're using. So whether your air column is slow and wide, depending on the type of color that you're trying to create, um, I find that the air and tongue go in opposite need to be in the opposite direction. So the more air and the more dimension, the, the compact, um, as I always try to say, you know, the, the faster the air speed and the more compact the dimension of the air column, the lighter the tongue needs to be. The wider the air column and the slower the speed, the more you can use more tongue pressure. Mm. But, if, but that's not helping you with speed. In my personal opinion, the best way that we can have a great articulation, a fast, effortless articulation, is to learn how to lighten the tongue pressure and to know that it's, it's not a massive movement. It's the smallest possible movement. It's all from the incisors forward. And I keep my tongue extremely elevated the entire time. Yeah. In the entire oral cavity, um, I feel the, the molars of my teeth. My tongue is, is, is right up there against the molars the entire time. So the, the only movement is in the front. Um, I think probably if, if it's probably a safe thing to say that, and I, I find this with most clarinet players today, is that um, just because you can make a sound doesn't mean it's your best sound. And most of the time people use too light of a setup, meaning too light of a read. So you're not used to using a fast, compressed air column because, you know, 
it's a light reed, you could just, just blow easily through the clarinet and you get a sound. But I think because of orchestral playing and learning how to make the best parts of your sound carried to the back of the hall, um, there needs to be, I'm not saying I don't want you to get a hernia and you don't need to play fives, but you do need to know how to uh, have a cooperative resistance. So if I try to play with a very, very slow airspeed and I just try to sort of exhale into the clarinet, I typically won't get a sound. And that means that I have to use a combination of, of, of embouchure pressure, diaphragm pressure, and then I can produce the sound that I want to hear based on, on the amount of air pressure and, and reed resistance. So that's, that, and, and, and as soon as I figured that out, there wasn't anything that I couldn't do at a tonguing speed. Now, of course, I, I multiple tongue as well. So I, I interchange single tonguing and double and triple tonguing all the time. But you should be able to tongue as fast as you need to. Uh, you know, you should be able to get to about 140, 144 with a single tongue if you use the right kind of air and you have the right resistance setup. Cooperative, not just all resistance, but cooperative. Totally, love that. Richard, do you have anything to add? Or? That's a great answer. I mean, I, I, I basically ditto <laughs> because I think the, the lighter that you can get the muscle of the tongue to be the faster and, and especially in the high register, you know, because thinking about the amount of vibrations that the reed has to create playing a high E, for instance, is, is much faster than a low E. And you can bite all you want and tongue as hard as you want on a low E, it's going to work. But a high E is just not going to do that. So, so I also think that, that the variation of articulations from the lowest range of the clarinet to the highest range of the clarinet has to vary and, and in order to get the same sound even. So, so you have to be aware in your ears to be creating the same quality of articulation. It's much more about the quality of it than it is about the speed. So, so the lighter, you know, the lighter you can get the articulation to be, you know, in those rows number fours and not like that, but like super long at first, because as, as you get older, you, you want the, you want that versatility of the speed. Well, this is interesting too, because it's one of those things that's kind of a musical disconnection for students. I mean, they think that at the beginning, the clarinet is kind of just a tube that you blow into and, and press the fingers, but all these sensitivities about the range you're talking about, those are some pretty advanced, um, some concepts that really need to be considered and, and musically sort of crafted. So I agree. Definitely. And it's actually something that, you know, I think everyone should talk about it from the beginning because, yeah. you know, students are really smart and you got to give them everything now, you know, and yeah. they'll pick it all up and, and figure it out. Well, too many times I go to a band program, too, and the teacher wants a do or a toe sound out of the group. So the kids intuitively are dropping their tongue in their mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be the sound you want, but I always explain to them, that's not what you need to do to get that result. So always listen and act a little differently in that way. So we've got some questions here from some big names that are rolling in. Uh, this one's from Bradford Bain. He says, Steve, can you, I think you addressed this a bit at the beginning. Um, he says, Steve, can you address, oh, sorry, Steve, can you discuss how your orchestral voice has evolved? Um, uh, I guess, um, you know, when, when I was at the Met, there would be moments when you would have to shine, uh, in, uh, whether it was a solo uh, moment or whether you were leading the wind section at times with something, uh, even if it was tutti, that, that you were the dominant voice and, you know, you had to sort of 
be at the forefront of the wind section. I found that especially true in opera, that um, I feel like the clarinet is, is the leader of the wind section in opera. Now in the symphonic world, oboists typically are the leaders. Um, and, and I feel like, uh, I think what ended up happening for me was that because I came out of the pit and then I was on stage, there's the pressure that you are the show rather than sometimes more of an accompaniment figure in opera. And I think what ended up happening was that I began, and to top it off, I went from an incredible acoustic at the Met where you can do anything you want. <laughs> and it is not only nurtured, it's, it, it blossoms. So you, if I was trying something new or a new form of articulation or a new form of uh, uh, phrasing, it just, oh my gosh, it's like, it just happened. And it was like so organic, it was, it was a joy. When I left that acoustic and went to Orchestra Hall here in Chicago, um, it's like playing in a desert. So the sound goes nowhere. It, and then what ends up happening is most people who play on that stage who aren't accustomed to what you really need to do, force their sound. And as you force your sound, then it gets more small and narrow. And um, not only is your dynamic range, you know, diminished greatly, but forget having color. You, you sound like you're playing on a pea shooter. So the crazy thing is I, I had to remember that the reason why I won the audition was because I brought my own sense of resonance to the hall and I tried to re relax as much as you can, but, but trust that what I give is enough and don't try to fight the hall. If you ever try to fight a hall, you're going to lose. So I began to, and I didn't change my equipment at all. I just, you just got to be comfortable with yourself it's not comfortable what you don't get back. You have to trust what you put out there. So yes, my, and, and then whenever we go on tour, it's, it's, it's an absolute blast because we just basically scale down 50%, sometimes 70% of what we normally would do. And then like the whole orchestra is listening in a completely different way. We're responding to the hall and to each other. And then it's, it's just like chamber music, but in the hall, you know, I very rarely can hear the first violins, and they, they have huge sounds, but their sound just goes out and it never comes back. So a lot of what I do is visual on that stage and just learning how to trust where I play and how I play, not trying to force anything I work so hard to develop so that you don't get negative returns. So that, that's how I, I think my voice is developed or changed. I love that. It's as if you could see the next two questions, because I think you answered Maury Bakun's and Jay Dubin's question as well. They were asking similar things about just operatic and orchestral careers. Um, so this has just been a great conversation. I do want to be mindful of the time. It's now three o'clock, but I do definitely want to thank both you and Richard for taking the time to come on today and Richard for hosting, doing another uh, episode of this. I think this will be the last one of these for a little while, but we will talk about uh, some more coming up in the future. And uh, before we go, Richard and Stephen, did you have any last things to add to the conversation? Um, let's see. Well, we'll have, um, I think we have one more. On oh, there is one more. My, my yeah, yeah. And uh, Michael Wayne, actually from Eastman, will be on in two weeks. And then um, I think next week we'll interview uh, Ben Lulich um, through uh, Bakun's site. And, uh, but Steve, it's so wonderful to talk to you. And I wish you all the best and, and uh, just... 
congratulations on all your amazing success, really. Thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure to speak with both of you and, and thank you for inviting me. It was a really, I had a great time. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. No matter where you're listening, be sure to subscribe so you can get access to future episodes for free right to your device. Next time will be a conversation between Richard Hawkins and Michael Wayne of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I want to thank Richard again for coming on to guest host these four episodes of the show, and I do hope that he'll come back in the future for more. Uh, if you have an idea for a guest host or for a, you know just a regular guest, or if you want to be a guest yourself even on the podcast, you can send me a message at feedback at clarinet.com. If you did enjoy the show today, I'd love it if you'd leave a review on iTunes. It's been almost a year since someone left a review, which makes me kind of sad, honestly. It's nice to hear from people all over the world. Um, and if you listened all the way to the end today, you are the prime target market for my Patreon page. Now, what this is, is a way to get access to an extended ad-free episode of the show for as little as $1 per month. And like I said, if you're here listening right now at the end, you're one of not actually that many people who listen to a podcast who make it to the end. I think it's like 60%, um, you know, get distracted or drop off halfway through of a lot of episodes, even Clarinet, believe it or not. But um, I want to thank those who are contributing more than $10 a month. That's Robert W., uh, Jason S., Glenn K., David S., Andrew M., William L., Miguel D., Debbie A., Patty S., Josh N and Karen D. Thank you so much for making the show possible. And thank you also, of course, to our sponsors. We have Legere Reads, which are a wonderful way to take advantage of the most practice time that you can get. And what I mean by that is guests have talked about on the show even before, but you can take all that time that you've been adjusting and fiddling with your reads and put it into your practice. And what I love about Legere Reads is, you know, if you have a plastic clarinet or a clarinet that you're uh, able to leave out, you can also leave the read on the mouthpiece and just have it ready to go. I, I can't tell you how many clinic situations or playing situations in the past, this has been very valuable to have a read that doesn't require moistening before being played. It's a real game changer. And if you've never experienced that before, it will definitely be a cool uh, thing the first time you realize how awesome that is. So you can check Legere Reads out at Legere.com or actually Bakun is now carrying them on their website. And this is the other sponsor of our show here today. Bakun Musical Services, you can get 10% off your next accessory or any purchase now at the website by using code Clarinet at checkout. This is everything from mouthpieces, barrels, bells, care kits, anything that's on their website, you can save 10% with code Clarinet at bakunmusical.com. Thank you so much for listening again today, and I look forward to seeing you next time on the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. <laughs>